me say uh, again to all you moms, happy Mother's Day. Since I've been here, I've wished mothers a happy Mother's Day. Never before have I done so with a vague sense in the back of my mind that someone might accuse me of doing something wrong by wishing you a happy Mother's Day. As you've probably heard the interviews, you've seen the reports, read the news, it's becoming increasingly hard, it seems, to be able to say what a woman is, what a mother is. And that's carried over, I heard just recently, to Mother's Day. There are people who say that, well, you can't really define the word woman or the word mother. And so some people who are out advocating for uh, women's rights can't define for you what a woman is. It's not that they're at a loss for words. It's it's that they'll say, I cannot define what a woman is for someone else. Everybody has to define that in their own minds for themselves. And and only if if you are a woman. I suppose a case could be made for approaching life that way if we have no way of defining ourselves outside of ourselves. If, however, God has created us, if, however, God has spoken, if God has told us how we were created, what we were created for, well, then much of the confusion around our age for us would disappear. I think God has created us, and he has spoken. So I want to read to you today from a couple of foundational texts from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and then Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then when we move to Genesis chapter 2, we don't have a different creation story or a competing creation story. What we really have is in Genesis 1, a big macrocosmic picture. And in Genesis chapter 2, then we've got a narrowly focused microscopic picture of the creation of human beings. We're told in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man. 
to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Now the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. They will become one flesh. Father, help us today as we uh, reflect upon your word uh, to not be confused by the confusion of our age. I pray especially, Father, for our young people and our children because, uh, Father, this spirit of the age is all around us. It's in the air that we breathe. It's uh, in the things that we see on television, the things that we hear on the radio. And so, Father, we pray that you by your grace, would give us clarity in our understanding of ourselves from your perspective. In Jesus' name, we pray. Well, if we're going to cut through the uncertainty of our age, and listen, I think everybody agrees that there's uncertainty. When you have people saying, I'm advocating for women, but I can't tell you what a woman is, that everybody has to admit that there is uncertainty. And so I'd like to uh, share with you today that I think that we need to understand a few things. First of all, we need to understand what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, uh, some of you know that I've done some study in the work on the image of God. Um, When I did my doctoral program, it is a huge topic. The, The doctrine of the image of God is a huge topic. And my work focused uh, very, very narrowly on what it meant for those with disabilities to be created in the image of God. But I'm convinced that this doctrine is foundational also for understanding who we are with respect to our gender and our sex. And so let me start again by reading this foundational statement. Then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. You know, some time ago in uh, my Sunday school class, somebody asked the question, who's the hour that's referred to? That's a great question. It's a good question, because it's, it's surprising. We don't expect that. Let us make man in our image. Well, it was suggested by some of the ancient rabbis that God was speaking there to the angelic court. He said to the angels, let us make man in our image. But there are a few problems with that. Even the ancients saw some problems with that. Um, angels, in the Bible, no matter where you go, there's some mention of the creation in the book of Job. Angels are never presented as creating anything or in helping in creation. It's the work of God alone. 
And human beings, when they're ever referred to with regard to this image, are always said to be made in the image of God. They're never said to be made in the image of angels. Well, the New Testament reveals to us that God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's something that's hinted at in the Old Testament scriptures and the Hebrew Bible, but it really becomes clearly revealed, clearly displayed in the New Testament. And once that became clear, some puzzling things that had been in the uh, Old Testament scriptures became clear to some people. For example, you know, Genesis 1-1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, for those uh, who, the original readers of that text, uh, who read the language, uh, in its, or read the text in its original language in Hebrew, they, they would be surprised that the word God there, that we translate God, is a plural word. It's a plural noun. The subject is plural. But the verb created, which then good grammar would tell us should be plural, is a singular. That's odd. In the beginning, God, a plural word, created. Well, if you were to just translate the verb itself, it would be he created. And it was puzzling or also helped them to understand what God meant when he said, let us make man in our image. In the early church, looked at those things, and they said, aha, as we see here that God reveals himself as eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the reason why the name for God in the Old Testament is plural is because of that plurality of persons in one being. When God said, let us make man in our image, there's an inter-Trinitarian council, if you will, if we use big theological language here, of God doing something that he does with nothing else in creation. Let us make man in our image. And so as the early church hammered out this doctrine that we call the Trinity, they reached some really inescapable conclusions. The first conclusion is there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, I am God and there is no other. There's only one God. There's not three gods. Uh, It's not that there's one God who's made up of three parts. There's one God. Yet, the Father is distinguishable from the Son and from the Spirit. And the Son is distinguishable from the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is distinguishable from the Father and the Son. And to borrow the language of the Apostle Paul from the book of Colossians when he talks about the incarnation, in which he says of the Son and the incarnation, in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Well, even before the incarnation, it can be said the fullness of deity dwells in the Father. And the fullness of deity dwells in the Son. And the fullness of deity dwells in the Holy Spirit. There are not three gods. There's one God. With that in mind, I want you to look then again at what God says in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female 
he created them. Uh, Every single person is made in, or a better translation of that Hebrew preposition would be as, made as the image of God. Every single person is made as the image of God. It's not that all humanity collectively, kind of synergistically, uh, makes up the image of God. And we're told that male and female, he created them. It's not here that uh, in human marriage, in this male and female relationship, that the image of God is found. But it's rather that the complete fullness of the image of God is completely and fully expressed in every male person. And the completeness and the fullness of the image of God is completely and fully expressed in every female person. There's only one image of God. The image of God isn't made up of two parts, two halves. And yet, the man is distinguishable from the woman. And the woman is distinguishable from the man. And each in themselves were created to express the totality of the image of God in a way that is analogous to the fullness of deity dwelling in the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. But human relationships are important to the image, just as the relation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are important to understanding what it means when we do anything approaching the divine, when we do anything approaching God. And so in Genesis chapter 2, 18, we read, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, uh, the male person here. I will make a helper suitable for him. You know, ever since uh, Romanticism began in the 18th century, whenever we read that passage, moderns, they have um, the Bill Withers song, just the two of us pop into our minds. Um, Or if you prefer uh, older music, the 1932 song that became a jazz standard, Alone Together. And then here's the idea that you know, God, God created this romantic couple to be alone together. But when, but when God says it's not good for the man to be alone, and he created woman, the plan was not for them to be alone together. It was for something to be much broader than that. And so we're told that God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. The, the, the not good of the aloneness, it's not good for man to be alone, extended beyond just the man and the woman. They weren't to be alone together, but to the coming into the world of other human beings. So that when we get over to Genesis chapter 5, 
and we read these words. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. When they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son. And if you're looking at your Bible, most of your Bibles will say, in his own likeness and in his own image, and named him Seth. That's an interpretation by the translators and editors. That's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, made him in his image and according to his likeness. I make the argument that what he's referring to there is not Adam's image. It's God's image. That's how it started. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And when Adam was 130 years uh, old, he had a son in his likeness and in his image. And, and so the man was created as and for the expression of the fullness of the image of God. He by himself fully expresses the image of God. The woman was created by herself fully expressing the image of God and the children who are created or procreated from that union as well, they fully bear, each of them individually in themselves, the image and the likeness of God. But the man is not the woman and the woman is not the man and the parents are not the children and the children are not their parents. Any of you parents have grown kids, you know that your parents, your kids are not you, right? There are, there are three that are mentioned there, but they're not three images of God. There's one image of God. And in creation, that image becomes a replicating image, a perpetuating image. And we see better what that means regarding things like uh, sex and gender to be created in the image of God when we, when we understand the help that is spoken of in Genesis 2, 18 and 24. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature... That was its name. So the man gave name to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took out the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of man, out of each. So God says, I will, I will make a, a help, or my translation here says a helper suitable for him. Now, you know, in our language, when we talk about the help, that means the waitstaff, right? Um, the domestic servants. 
And uh, in our language, even if we use the word helper, the word helper is an inferior subordinate or an assistant. But the Hebrew word for help here is the word edzer. We, uh, we sing that word, that Hebrew word, whenever we sing the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We sing, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And that word uh, Ebenezer in the Hebrew better, uh, Evan Eitzer, our stone of help, our rock of help. So when Jacob blessed Joseph in Genesis 49, he said to him, he said that God has been my help, my Acer. In Exodus chapter 18, Moses named his son Eliezer, means God is my help. In Deuteronomy 33, uh, God is said to be Israel's shield and aid, sir, their help. If I listed all the places that uh, God is called aid, sir, in the Old Testament, we would not only not make it to dinner today, you wouldn't be getting out of here until 6 or 7 o'clock tonight. Azer in the Hebrew Bible does not mean domestic servant. It does not mean unskilled subordinate assistant. Azer means the person whose aid one cannot do without. Now, it would be a mistake to flatten this down one-dimensionally. But in the context of what's said here, this is not the only thing that it applies to. But when, when, when it became evident that it wasn't good for the man to be alone, that he needed help, what was it that he needed help with? You think it was his laundry? You, you, you think... He needed somebody to help him tend the garden. That might be nice. It's always nice to get help with something like that, some, you know, hard manual labor. But Azer means someone whose help I can't do without. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam had Zero chance of doing that alone. Zero chance. He needed a help. He needed an aid, sir. As God is our help in doing things that we would have zero chance of doing without him, God gave to the man someone corresponding to him without whom he would have zero chance of fulfilling what God had called him to do. Now, now what does that mean? Let me say again that the, that, the, that the doctrine of the image of God is huge. It's a huge topic. And I want to be careful that we don't detract from it by oversimplifying it. In our traditional marriage service, we speak about the mutual help of the man and woman. And that can't be merely reduced to procreation, to reproduction. So is, is procreation here then the only value of the woman? Is that what that's saying? No. 
Must women be married or have children to express the image of God? If you were paying attention up to this point, you know the answer is no. What about the fact that some women can't have children? Doesn't that mean then that we could define other persons who can't have children as women or they can define themselves that way? Well, the answer is no. And the reason is this, friend, let me give you an analogy. Human beings were designed with two arms and two legs. That's how we were designed. If someone is born without arms and legs, we don't say, yeah, I wonder if that's a human being or not. We realize that that is a human being for whom something has gone wrong. And we say that could be... Now, we don't say, we don't conclude, therefore, well, since they're human beings without arms and legs, then other things without arms and legs, like snakes, maybe. Maybe they can be human beings. Because the snake without arms and legs is proper to what a snake is. And for human beings, unable to beget children in the case of men or bear children in the case of women, indicates that something's gone wrong. If a woman isn't able to have children, that doesn't mean she isn't a woman. Or that since men can't have children, that they too can be women because there are some women who can't bear children. We recognize her as a woman, and if we're Christians, we recognize her as being made in the image of God for whom something has gone wrong in this fallen world. But what this does mean is that the woman is called Azer, as God is Azer to his people. it's, it's 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 a title of great dignity and worth. And the, and the dignity and worth of motherhood deserves respect and reverence. Now, it's Mother's Day today, but I want to conclude today by addressing our young people. And uh, especially if they can't understand or really haven't been able to follow this mom and dad, maybe you can be my interpreter for them later on today at home. Today we hear about, we see in the news, they're, they're lauded and exalted biological males who identify themselves as women, biological women who identify themselves as males, and it raises the question of our identity. Where does our identity come from? You know, in 1944, C.S. Lewis wrote a book entitled The Abolition of Man. And and Lewis, maybe alone in 1944, Lewis would not have been surprised if somebody had come from 80 years in the future and told him what was happening today. Oh, maybe in the contours, but I'm not even sure Lewis would be surprised. Let me read you what he writes toward the end of that book. This was written in 1944. He says, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. Now the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. And the solution is scientific technique. 
And in the practice of this technique, we are ready to do things which before were considered disgusting or impious. Young people, you are being fed a pack of lies when you are told that you can self-identify. No one self-identifies. And and Timothy Keller gives this example when he's uh, talking about it. He he asks you to run a thought experiment, and I'll ask you to do the same. Suppose that you have a 12th century Anglo-Saxon warrior. Uh, Here's somebody who lives in a shame and honor culture where pride is encouraged, where violence is accepted. And our hypothetical Anglo-Saxon warrior has two impulses. One is that he's intensely proud and he has the impulse to kill anyone who disrespects him. The other impulse that he has is same-sex attraction. And this Anglo-Saxon warrior in the 12th century will think of his impulse to kill people who disrespect him, this is good, this is who I am. But he'll see his same-sex attraction as a foreign intruder to his psyche, and he'll try to subdue it. Keller says, now take that same man and drop him in 21st century Manhattan. And that man who has those same impulses will now look at his same-sex attraction and he will say, this is good, this is who I am. And of his impulse to kill people who disrespect him, he'll say, I need to seek counseling. I need anger management training. This is not who I am. In neither case has either man defined himself. Both take their impulses, this, this, this big bag of feelings that we all have of impulses, and they run them through the grid of the spirit of their age, which tells them how they are allowed to define themselves. For those of you who are over 30, do you ever remember in your high school anybody being confused about their gender? I don't. Why is it happening so much now? It's because when children have what in most cases are fleeting feelings, in response they're told to let the spirit of the age define them. Young people, God created you as male or female. That doesn't have much to do at all with the clothing you like or the length of your hair or even your gross anatomy when you look down when you're taking a shower. You are made male or female to your DNA. Every cell in your body is male or female. And, and you, each and every one of you, completely and fully reflect the image of God. Some is male, some is female. For in the image of God, God created you. Male or female, he created you. 
And young people, as you grow up in this confused world, you're going to have to determine what you will allow to define you as you go through the often confusing impulses of childhood and puberty. You have to determine whether you will allow yourself to be led by the spirit of the age, which is always changing, always shifting, always something new, and which is always living in rebellion against God, or whether you will allow yourself to be defined by the God who created you and loves you enough to send his son into the world to die for you, to redeem you so that you could reach your full potential and grow into all that God has designed you to be. Sorry, moms, not much of a giddy Mother's Day message. But if we're to even have Mother's Day anymore, if we're going to honor mothers, we have to have some idea of what they are. And I hope that you'll take your direction, your definition, your identity from God's Word and not from the unstable spirit of the age which 50 years from now will move on from this and be on to the next thing. Father, we pray that you would help us to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.